Good morning, everyone. If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. I'm thankful to David for stepping in at the last moment last week while I was sick, and it was just of the Lord. It was a, a gracious word from God toward us, placing our trust in the head of our household and um, laboring together to be steadfast and to exhort one another as long as it's called today to press on, to know the Lord and to submit to Him. And now we're going to be back in Second Peter this morning, uh, resuming chapter 2. And a reminder, we've titled this series um, Grace and Godliness. This is Peter's theme of this letter is stirring up sincere hearts by way of reminder. He wants us to make every effort to make our calling and election sure and to obtain the salvation that God has given to us by grace in Christ through the promises, right? He's given us his word. And two weeks ago, we saw this with uh, Eric preaching to us about God's glory in Revelation, how God inspired prophets, spoke from God to give us this word more sure than an audible voice from heaven to which we would do well to pay attention. But then there's a plot twist this week because these, these chapter divisions aren't there in the original. So you just have to keep reading the letter. And the very next word after God gave us his word through the mouths of true prophets and none of it was their own private interpretation. It was God's spirit driving them along. They were carried by him like a ship carried by the wind. And the very next word is but, but opposite to that, opposite to us receiving true words from the Almighty God through true prophets, there is false prophets who even in those days were uh, just propagating false gospels and false messages that were not from God. And there are false teachers today that the enemy never misses an opportunity to infiltrate where the true gospel is being proclaimed to lace in into the society, into churches, to lace in false messages and false gospels. Just like somebody might infuse counterfeit money and put counterfeit money into circulation, the enemy puts in false gospels into circulation to seek to lead people astray. And so those false teachers and their destiny is the topic of our message today. So if you are a note taker and are titling uh, your sermon notes, the title of this message is A Portrait of False Teachers and Divine Judgment. That's what Peter gives us today is a portrait of false teachers and God's divine judgment. So if you have your Bible, Second Peter chapter 2, if you're physically able, stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. And we will begin in Verse 1 of chapter 2. This is God's holy and true word to us this morning. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, 
and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormented in his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Let's pray. Father, we bless you for the power, the authority, the majesty of your word. And you have given us in this text a, a warning, a stark picture of those who would adulterate your word, who would lead people astray. God, incline our hearts to you. I know that there are people coming in that would rather for a message in the Psalms or something that seemed on the surface more devotional, more hopeful. And yet in every part of your word, you speak, you have treasure hidden up for us, you have Christ for us so that we might glory in you afresh and exalt you and magnify your name. And so I pray that you would give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your church humble hearts to receive. Lord, shower your word into those thirsty hearts that long for you in a dry and weary land where there's no water. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I was in India with Levi recently, and uh, he had this amazing word picture for the idolatry that we observed all around. And I was thinking about that when I was studying this text, and he was telling our friends in India that there was this time this summer when my son Elijah was wearing virtual reality goggles. We were at a cousin's house, and they had this cool video game system where you put the virtual reality goggles on, and all of a sudden, you're transported into another world. And it, in, in their life, that means being Spider-Man. So Levi has aspirations to actually become Spider-Man one day. The tech will come out. You will see it at some point. But for right now, we have to go to a virtual reality to get in that world. And so Elijah's in this virtual world, and he is Spider-Man. He's crawling up buildings, and as he's doing, you know, you can see him fighting, and he's walking around where there's these stairs that are right there beside where he's playing at his cousin's house, and he, he's getting closer and closer to the stairs. And it's kind of like when you're watching those scary movies when, like, Jaws would come out and your dad would go, Wah! and, like, bite your leg right when Jaws would come on the scene. It just so happened that right as Elijah was falling off a building, he got right close to the stairs. Levi, not wanting him to fall down the stairs, kind of gives Elijah a nudge, but he gets this physical contact while he's falling off a building, and Elijah hits the deck, like, boom, and he hits his face on the floor and gets a nosebleed. Now, he was fine. We're all able to laugh about it later, but it was an example 
of living in an alternate reality that seemed convincingly real, but it wasn't true. This is what the enemy wants to do to us, is to slip on you virtual reality goggles, to create a make-believe world that, that actually blinds you to dangerous realities all around and puts you in vanity fair of sorts, to use Bunyan's parable or illustration, right, where you are convinced that this world is all there is, and so he does it by your circumstances looming large, you've got your pleasures, your fears, your anxieties, you've got things in your life that seem bigger than your God, and the whole while he's wanting to blind you from spiritual realities, wanting to blind you from sound doctrine, from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And if he can instead get you to look at your circumstances, your pleasures, your fears, your own strength, then with your eyes off of Jesus, and this is really important, lean in, you are more ripe or more prone to buy into false teaching when your heart is that hungry soil that's not being satisfied in Jesus. When you have your eyes off of Jesus and you can think, I'm just in a dry spot. Or I'm just in a spot where I have these anxieties, these fears, and God understands, and I'm working through them. But you've got your eyes off of Jesus, or you're chasing after your pleasures, and you're going through a hard time. And all of a sudden, the deceptiveness of false teachers creeps in. And they seem like they want to help, and they seem so genuine. I I hear that sometimes from believers, as if being genuine is like the measure of truth, and like as if authenticity... And genuineness is somehow like an open door to my life, and I'll just listen to whatever you have to say. Uh, But false teachers can be very genuine. They speak just what you need to hear. It's just what you're looking for. And all the while, the enemy's slipping on those virtual reality goggles. So the question for you this morning is, how do you know that what you're hearing online from preachers that you found on YouTube or books that were recommended to you by a friend or that came up on your feed or articles that you read, how do you know that they're telling you the truth? Even ones that use Bible verses. How do you know? The Lord Jesus said himself that many professing Christians will be led astray by false teachers. So you can think, that'll never happen to me. We can have Peter's mindset like, not me, Lord. I'll never, I would never do that. Jesus said many. Many will fall away. How can you know it won't be you? It's just Peter writing the same thing here, that there's going to be many that will follow these false teachers. How can you be sure that you won't be led away from steadfastly following Christ? And so this is what Peter's doing. He's writing to stir us up by way of reminder. He's wanting to take the virtual reality goggles off so that you have this clear portrait of what these false teachers look like and who they are and where they're headed and where people who follow them are headed so that you don't fall away from your own steadfastness, so that you give heed to what he said in chapter 1. So chapter 1 is all about making our election and our calling sure and by taking hold of being partakers of the divine nature through the promises that God's given us and pressing on into godliness. And so chapter 2 is a stark warning against the contrast to chapter 1. Right? If you don't do this, there's no neutrality. You're either pressing on into godliness or you are making yourself pray for the next false teaching that comes along. And so he begins chapter 2 
if you're, if you're taking notes, this is the first kind of section of our time together, is he begins by giving us a portrait of a false teacher. A portrait of a false teacher. Now, when we talk about false teachers, there are men who teach what is false, and then there are men who are themselves false, even while teaching what is true. Does that make sense? So you have people that lace in, they twist the scriptures to their own ends or to satisfy their own pleasures, and they teach what is false. And then there are men who teach what is orthodox and true, but they don't themselves believe any of it. They may even be convinced that they believe it, all the while they're not truly born again. And the content of this chapter is really just painting this portrait of who these false teachers are. There's not one command or instruction in chapter 2. The commands came in chapter 1. He's already exhorted us to be supplementing our faith with all these virtues and godliness. And there are instructions in chapter 3 where he warns us about the specific content of these false teachers and tells us how to fight and to be on guard and to press on into holiness and godliness. But in this chapter, we are really just warned about who to be on guard against and to remember their end and the end of those who follow them. Now, I want to give one word of caution before we dive into this portrait. Just the dangers here are the same as with spiritual warfare. We're prone to two tendencies. One is to completely ignore the enemy and the reality of spiritual warfare, and the other would be to be obsessed with spiritual warfare and the enemy and just to see Satan around every turn and him being the cause of every little hardship in your life. And so the same thing is true here, that there is a kind of suspicion against every teacher, every article, everything that is uncharitable, that's kind of like a witch hunt. But there is a real need to be on guard because there are savage wolves among you that want to eat you. And so how can we beware and at the same time not be consumed with false teachers and false teaching, but instead be consumed with your master? So in chapter se- uh, verse 17 of chapter 3, he's going to say, Beware lest you be carried away with the error of lawless men and lose your own stability. And so I would just highlight both of those things. Beware, and what they're leading you away from is stability. (laughs) And so be stable, be rooted in Christ, and then beware of these men. And I want you to hear my heart as we uh, look at this portrait of false teachers. I feel as jealous for you and as protective over you as you would of your children if you found out that there were groomers sneaking their way into your kid's childcare or into the nursery downstairs. So when I say beware of these men, I'm saying there is real dangers here, real dangers. And so when we are talking about this portrait of a false teacher, this is like you with your kids saying, listen to mommy and daddy. If anybody ever says this to you, if anybody ever does this, they do this, they do this. I want you to come talk to me. I want you to. So that is our heart, that there are real, there's a real enemy of your soul. And he really wants you to lead you astray from Christ. And he uses his children to do it. And we want to take a look at the portrait of who these men are and what they look like so that you know and are aware. So the first thing that we observe about false teachers from this text is that they're disguised as Christians. Now, this is certainly not true of every false teacher. There are false teachers in the world. That's clear. There's 
there are myriads of false teachings in the world. It's actually probably the easiest way to discover false teaching in the church is just look whatever's being taught in the world and look where false teachers are adopting the culture and capitulating to the morals of the world and just sticking a Jesus veneer on it. So if you just were to drive down Western Avenue, you would see this kind of false teaching where there's this sexual license and perversion that is now being celebrated in the name of God because God is love and he has changed and he's still speaking. And one of the ways that he's still speaking is by all of a sudden adopting the very things that he died to save us from. But what you just see this in verse 1. Just as false prophets arose among the true prophets and among the people, there will be false teachers, listen, among you. Among you. That just like the liar and the deceiver from the beginning, the father of lies was in the garden, hiding out in the garden, seeming so helpful, seeming like he was there to, to help Eve, to know how God was holding out on her and to help her to become more like God. They, he was in the garden and he's in the church. There, <clears throat> this is the consistent teaching of, you look at the book of Acts or everywhere in, in Jude, you can go home and read Jude. It's one chapter, and you'll see the similarities between this chapter that we're in and the book of Jude. These false teachers specifically are among the sheep. Jesus disguised them as wolves in sheep's clothing. It's not just wolves. That would be bad enough, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They want to come in and creep in unnoticed, Jude says, so that they're, they're right there with you. And if a sheep looks at a wolf who's in sheep's clothing, what do you think that wolf looks like to the sheep? This is why we need she- you need shepherds, because wolves in sheep's clothing look exactly like sheep. This is not like some, like, men in black awkward thing where like the alien puts on the skin but it doesn't look anything like a man this is like the wolf in sheep's clothing putting on sheep's clothing and looking like baptized in another church pretty charismatic and gregarious knowledgeable they're impressive they're transferring their membership into our church and they've got a plan to lead you astray from christ they look like christians they have YouTube channels, preaching from the Bible, saying true things about Jesus. Paul, to his uh, parting address to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, says, After my departure, fierce wolves will come in, here's the same language, among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. Why? To draw away the disciples after them. So they disguise themselves as genuine Christians. And listen to me. They may actually believe that they're genuine Christians. So Paul says in, when he's writing to Timothy that imposters will go on from bad to worse. And then he says deceived and being deceived. So they've actually believed their own deception and they're, they're calling other people to follow them into their error. These are nice guys, friendly on the surface, like their father the devil, disguised as angels of light. The second observation is that they smuggle in deceptive and destructive teaching. It says that they secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. In verse 3, it says, in greed, they exploit with false words. Or like Paul said in Acts just now, they speak twisted things. 
Later in 2 Peter 3, he says they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. So in all these different places, they are fabricating. They're teaching. They're using the Bible to do it, twisting the scriptures to their own end. In Jude, he talks about these same guys creeping in unnoticed. They're ungodly people, and they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. So, same teaching all around, that they deny the master and they pervert the grace of God into sensuality. They twist the scriptures, and it says they, they do so secretly. They are actually giving you truth and lacing it with poison, and it's not just harmful to your faith. This is not just they are, they are giving you faith, uh, they're, they're giving you teaching that's going to detract away from your faith or that's going to hurt you in your walk with God. The language is destructive. He uses it three times in these first three verses. He uses it five times in the whole letter of Second Peter, and it means damnable. It's the same kind of language in Galatians 1 where Paul writes, if anyone gives to you a gospel, he preaches a gospel contrary to the one that you've heard from us, then he is to be accursed, put out from the church that they're not believers. It is damnable because they are teaching a false Christ and a false gospel, and they're using the true Christ to do it. They, it's deceptive and sneaky and subversive. Now, this text is not saying, when it says that they deny the master who bought them, what this text is not saying is that these men somehow lost their salvation. Like, they placed their trust in Christ in truth, they were born again, Jesus bought them, and then they deny him, and now they are now they're damned. That's not what he's saying. Because we know that Jesus rescues his own and that of all the Father gives to him, he loses not one out of his hand and that his saving is effectual. This is not a knock on the atonement of Christ as if somehow he bought them and paid for them, but his blood couldn't cover them and so they fell away. But it's saying, as the resurrected firstborn of all the kings of the earth, he has, by his cross and by his resurrection, laid claim to every single man. And they have professed faith in Christ and, and have acted like, disguised themselves as submissive to his lordship, that he's the master. And so they are claiming him with their lips, but denying him with their lives. And they are leading other people away into that same kind of false Christianity. It is deceptive and it is destructive, damnable. Number three, they're lustful or sensuous. You see this language all throughout, and I'm going to borrow from our text from next week. In verse two, it says, many will follow them into their sensuality. Or in verse seven, Lot was distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. It, the, the word means filthy, right? So this is the, they are lustful. It is filthy, and conduct in verse 10 it says that God will keep the unrighteous. I don't know what's happening here. Um, he'll keep the unrighteous under punishment, especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion. And so that is their sensual passions. Verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. Verse 18, they entice people by sensuous passions, or we just read in Jude 4 that they pervert the grace of God into 
sensuality. And so in each one of these cases, you can kind of see the false teachings of the world. You can look at the last of them disguising in these deceptive teachings, and you can look at the system of the world and the worldliness of the world sneaking its way into the church, and it's more obvious to those who are grounded in truth. As you just drive through town, you can see, okay, anybody who claims Christ but says that people can pursue their own sexual deviance and claim to be Christians has adopted a different gospel. That's not just a, a different version of Christianity. That is a destructive teaching. But here you can see that this is, they teach this way because they are this way themselves. And what he's saying in Jude is that they pervert the grace of God and turn it into sensuality. And so they've actually taken God's kindness and his grace towards sinners and where God says, if you turn from your sin and place your trust in Christ, then he will forgive you of your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. They say, God is so gracious, he'll cleanse you from your unrighteousness while you stay in it and make peace with it. There's no need for repentance. God is gracious and merciful. He understands you. And these teachers are led by their cravings, overcome by their lusts and indulge in the flesh as a way of life. So we know that when God sends a spirit to live in us, that we are led by the Spirit of God and by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the body. But these teachers are led by the flesh and not by the Spirit because they don't have the Spirit. They're faking it. And they do all of this because they want to accumulate a following. We'll get to that in a moment. But you got to see what a perfect match the worldliness of the world and people It works like this. God has stamped eternity on the hearts of people. And they know that there is some kind of transcendent reality that is greater than them, that they should be a part of or they should give their life to. Everybody wants a cause to be a part of or some cause to champion. And everybody at the same time despises authority and the Lordship of Christ including these false teachers. So people are hungry for teaching. A lot of people are hungry for some kind of superstitious, I want to know that I'm going to be good with God. I love myself, and I don't want to uh, be damned everlastingly. I don't want myself to go to hell. But I also love myself and my own authority. So I am hungry to find some kind of teaching, some version of Jesus or God and the gospel or some could be a, a different religion or some other kind of cause that will let me be a part of some transcendent reality where I can feel like I'm touching the supernatural and I'm having this itch met all the while holding on to my own authority and getting to do whatever I want. People accumulate for themselves teachers who will scratch their itching ears, who will tell them what they want to hear. And it is a perfect match with these false teachers who also despise authority, but they love notoriety. They love positions of authority. They love, we'll see in a moment, money. And they love to exploit people. And if they're in a position of power, then it just fits their greed and their lust of their flesh all the more. It's why false teachers don't teach about sin and repentance unless they're teaching truths and they themselves are false. 
It's a different kind. But most false teachers don't teach about sin or repentance. They're not. We work through books of the Bible so that we're faced with texts like this, so that we're preaching on 2 Peter chapter 2. You know why? Guess what chapter false teachers do not teach out of? <laughs> They're not doing a book study in the book of Jude. Like, if you turn with me to chapter 2, you're probably pretty safe. But they are not teaching about sin and repentance. They are giving people a version of Christ that will allow them to stay in their sin and make peace with it. It's cheap grace. It's decisionism. It's, it's, we'll work out the fine print on the lordship of Christ later, but if you just come and you pray this prayer, then you'll be forgiven of your sins, and you start tithing, by the way, and that would be great. So that's the fourth fact that we're, we're seeing in this portrait of false teachers. They're greedy and arrogant and self-seeking. It's all about them. Verse 3, it says, in their greed, they'll exploit you with false words. Or verse 10, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Or verse 14, they have their hearts trained in greed. You guys know these types, right? It's, they, they love themselves. They love luxury. They love comfort. They preach other messages for other people to hear about sacrifice, about giving, while Jesus says they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger, right? So they're big on you giving to their ministry so that you can be blessed by God and so that they can be blessed by your giving. And they may even convince themselves that this is just part of being a leader, right? Nobody really knows what we go through and the hardships of ministry and the hardships of laboring over people's souls. And so I just, I, I earned this one. And they convince themselves that it's just part of, it's part of, in the corporate world, leaders live like this, and they, they experience these kind of blessings, and it just kind of comes with being a leader over this kind of movement, this many people. But what they're after is their own gain, their own prominence and notoriety. And they're so hard-hearted in their position of pride and authority that it says they blaspheme the glorious ones. I'm going to dive into this nature of blaspheming angels and demons, but the point is, they, they are doing things that even angels who are perfect would tremble to do. And they do it with a callous heart, completely fine with it. Because they're spiritually arrogant, and they're after their own gain, and they feel themselves invincible and untouchable. So, they're using the, the love of money and, the, and fame to say anything that will acquire a following and acquire people giving into their ministries and they are using Christ and false teaching to get what they want. They're using Jesus to get what they want. Number five, they despise the lordship of Christ. This is verse two. They're denying or continually refusing and saying no to the master who bought them. Or verse 10, it says that they despise authority, but that word for authority is lordship. They despise all authority. But it's a reflection or an echo of them despising the authority of Christ. So I want you to hear this. There are so many different kinds of false teachers and false teachings in the world. But at the bottom, this is the common thread in the springboard of all the other false teachings, is that they despise the lordship of Christ. They could affirm the cross of Christ. They could affirm the resurrection. They could affirm the virgin birth. They could affirm that Jesus ascended into heaven. 
But at the bottom, if they despise and reject the lordship of Christ, they're not believers. And this is the damning heresy beneath all the false teachings. And they will come to that last day and say, Lord, did we not teach all these people in your name and do all these mighty miracles in your name? And Jesus will look at them and say, you call me Lord, but I never knew you. You, you said the words Lord, but you didn't actually submit to me with your life. You didn't have a faith that yielded to me as the master of your life. And when false teachers teach other people to do the same, to claim Christ without actually obeying him and submitting our lives to him. That real saving faith looks like a life that is filled with God's Holy Spirit and is pressing on towards holiness and the fear of God. Where that is not taught, they're teaching damnable heresy that plunges people into destruction and into ruin. And lastly, so this is a part of the portrait, but it's, it's the result of everything that they are. And Peter says they caused the way of Christ to be blasphemed. Consider this. False men who love themselves and their sensuality and their greed, who disguise themselves as ministers of righteousness and then make shipwreck of their marriages and their ministries. What happens to the true way of Jesus? What happens to the gospel of Christ and the reputation of Christ in the world when men use Christ to get what they want, and they treasure other things more than Christ? What happens when they use their positions to prey on will, women and children? What happens when they proclaim a gospel that allows people to think that they believed on Christ without ever receiving him as their master? What happens when you go out and poll any community that is post-Christian and they will say that their biggest hindrance to believing on the Lord Jesus is the hypocrisy of his people. When the gospel is not, if somebody ever says to you, I, I really appreciate Jesus, I just can't get with his followers, give them the gospel. Everybody's sinful. He came for sinners. The message is not that we have everything together, but that he is making us new and that there is salvation and hope that's found only in Christ alone. So some of their accusations about Christians being hypocrites comes from their own misunderstanding of the gospel. And then some of it is because people claim Christ while denying him with their lives. And it causes the way of Christ to be blasphemed in the world. So because of that, you have the portrait of false teachers, and now we enter into the punishment of false teachers and the ungodly who follow them. So listen to this. Verse 1, they bring upon themselves swift destruction. Verse 3, their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Now, what follows in verse 4 through 9 is one long sentence. Peter's rivaling Paul here for one of the longest sentences in the entire scriptures. And it's a big if-then statement. He just keeps saying if over and over and over again as examples to you. But the linchpin where he's headed is the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So hear that. That's where he's headed in all these if-then statements. If God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So look ahead. Then he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. 
Go back up to verse 5. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, then he knows how to rescue the godly from trials, see Noah, and he knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what was going to happen to the ungodly, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The punishment of these false teachers who use Christ for their own aims, whether it's their sensuality or their greed, who exploit people and plunge other people into destruction, the punishment of these false teachers is certain and sure. You just ask yourself, could there be any crime greater in the universe than causing the way of the Lord Jesus Christ to be blasphemed and to cause other people to be led away from Christ to their own destruction? They destroyed others, and so they themselves will be destroyed. They kept other people from seeing the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, and so they themselves will spend eternity in outer darkness. They kept people from fellowship with God, and so they will suffer away from His presence themselves forever. We saw this in 2 Thessalonians 1. The Lord Jesus will come inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. I was reading this morning in Revelation chapter 6 and it's describing the end of everything when the heavens are rolled up and the Lord Jesus returns and it says that heaven and earth try to flee away from his presence and there's nowhere to go. And that people who rejected him, kings, governors, powerful, influencers, rich, famous, everyone, poor, rich, they all try to run into these mountains that are quaking or these buildings that are about to fall down, they're trying to get in to plead with them to fall on them so that they don't have to see the face of God, so they don't have to experience the wrath of the Lamb. And there's nowhere to go. You look ahead to Revelation 20, and right before it's describing the, the second death where people are raised, and it says the books are opened and God renders to everyone according to what they've done. It's the most terrifying language in the world. Who wants to be judged based on your life? It says that these people are raised if they're not part of the first resurrection because of placing their trust in Christ, that they're raised to an eternity of judgment. Jesus describes hell as a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, where there's torment forever and ever. This verse says that they bring upon themselves swift destruction, meaning it's near at hand. And God's judgment is just. God will never give anyone one ounce of punishment more than they deserve. And no one should be relieved by that. 
when it says that it's not asleep, means God is so patient, so merciful, so gracious, so giving everyone opportunity to repent. That in, in chapter 3, it says, where's the promise of his coming? He's slow about his promise. And Peter says, he's not being slow about his promise. He's giving you time to repent. There's people that are taking the slowness, the perceived slowness of Jesus' coming, his mercy, and doubting whether or not he's going to be true to his promise, which is just like the world who hates God, to actually take the mercy of God and then say that God's not true. It's easy for the ungodly to assume that because judgment is long in coming that it's somehow being replaced with mercy. But his coming is sure, and so is the judgment. This language is not sleeping. It's ready to spring. It's like a trap that is ready to be sprung. And I think about Agag in the Old Testament where God called his people to commit these people to total destruction for their idolatry and their hatred of God. And Saul, in his wisdom, thinks he's got a better idea and he leaves Agag alive. And so Agag is coming up after Samuel calls him and it says that he's kind of singing a little whistle. He's coming along cheerfully because he thinks that the bitterness of death is past. Samuel says, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. And he receives what he deserves for the deeds committed in the body. God will show no mercy to those outside of Christ. That is the point of verses 4 through 9. The repeated refrain, he did not spare. He did not show them forgiveness outside of his appointed means, and he will not. Sinners must flee to Christ for mercy or they will find none. He has made a way for people to receive pardon. We so resonate with sinfulness more than we resonate with God, that we marvel that God could actually judge sinners instead of marveling that he's made a way for us to be rescued. This is a question. Do you know Jesus Christ? If you're here, you're listening to this message, you're watching online, do you know Jesus Christ in truth? Have you repented of your sins and placed your trust in him? Because if God did not spare the angels who were perfect in glory and excellence when they sinned, then he will not spare you. He will not spare your friends or your family. If he didn't spare the ungodly of the ancient world, those with less knowledge of God and of Christ than we have, then he won't spare the ungodly of our generation. Sodom and Gomorrah had less light than we do, and he condemned them to utter destruction. And he says that he did so not just as an example of what happens to the false teachers, but what happens to those who follow them, those who are ungodly. And the language for the ungodly is those who have no fear of God. They don't honor God with their lives. They despise the lordship of Christ. They may adopt Christ in a thin veneer over their lives where they pursue whatever they want. But at the bottom, they've not yielded to him as the king of their life. The point of this text, as he gives all these, if God did not spare, if he did not spare, if he did not spare, then he knows how to keep the ungodly who despise the lordship of Christ and reject Christ to the last. He knows how to keep them under punishment 
until the day when he comes to judge the living and the dead. But this brings us to our last section and our hope. We have the portrait of the false teachers. We have the punishment of the false teachers and those who follow them. But we have the preservation of the godly. Was kind of put in here all these precautions and warnings and what we should do with this teaching on false teachers specifically. But that's coming in chapter 3 about you being rooted and not being moved from your own steadfastness. But the question for you is, if these false teachers are so deceptive and if their teaching is so destructive, if it leads, plunges people into ruin, and Jesus himself said that many people will fall away, then how can you know that you will endure? In verse 9 of our text, it says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and temptations. He knows how to rescue the godly. Now, the example that Peter gives for that are Noah and Lot. And the brothers and I were talking about this in a, a preaching book that we were reading. The, the many characters in the Bible are not just there as examples of these perfect people who followed God, it's just Noah and Lot we're talking about. You can go back and read the account of Noah's life and see, though he is righteous and a herald of righteousness, he's not perfect. He was not resting in his own righteousness. Noah did not escape the flood that came upon the ungodly by his own merit, but because God called him to himself and put him into the ark, who was a picture of Christ. So that if anyone by faith would enter in the ark of Christ Jesus, they would be spared from the wrath of God that is coming upon the sons of disobedience. That is why Noah is used as an example. And in referencing Lot, Peter calls Lot righteous three times. Now, I think Lot, even when I was first reading this, I'm prone to give Lot a hard time. Because all you have to have done is have read anything about Lot's life, and it just seems like a royal screw-up and a terrible father and an immoral man uh, if you're just reading Genesis. But the commentary from Peter is that Lot was righteous. And so who do we believe, your reading of the text or God's reading of the text? Lot was righteous. His soul was tormented day and night by the wickedness around him. Is that true of you? You see the wickedness around you? Do you begrudge it? Do you judge people around you as though you are somehow more righteous than them by your own merit, forgetting that, but for the grace of God, you would be in their exact same place? So do you despise them, or do you weep and groan and cry out to the Lord because of the wickedness around you? Lot is more righteous than us in this way. And so I think because we read of Lot's unrighteous activity that we would somehow have passed the test better in that moment when we find out that our home is about to be destroyed and that these, all these people beating down your door and we think, I would never have done what he did. Maybe not, praise God. But this text says that he was righteous. You know what the word for righteous in this text is? It's the same word for justified. It is not that right let Lot was so righteous by his own merit, so godly that God was like, I'm going to save him. He believed, just like Abraham, his uncle, when Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham believed God, 
about the coming offspring, who was Christ, and God reckoned his faith to him as righteousness. He declared him righteous on the basis of faith, and in the same way, Lot was declared righteous by God based on faith in the coming offspring of Abraham, and God rescued him from the wrath that he was pouring out on the unrighteousness around him. And so Lot and Noah are given to us as examples of men who had placed their trust in the coming Christ and were declared righteous in the same way that we're declared righteous by placing our trust in Christ, and as examples of men who feared the Lord. In contrast with the ungodly who do not fear God, God knows how to rescue you in the midst of his just wrath that is coming on the world. So listen to this, beloved. Romans 5, verse 8 and 9. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That wrath is real. Hell is real. And false teachers are headed there swiftly. And those who follow them are headed there swiftly. And the only hope from the wrath of God is the Son of God, who is given in love for sinners, so that we could enter into the ark of Christ Jesus and be saved by him from the wrath of God. It's why it is said of Christians, when Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in him, a faith that is real, that is marked by yielding to him as our Lord and our Savior, is our only hope. So that's a question for you, believer. Where is your hope? When we ask the question, when you read this text and it says, he did not spare them, he did not spare them, he did not spare them, and I ask you, will he spare you? Where is your hope? What is your answer? If you're pointing to your own righteousness, if you're pointing to your behaviors, to your last week, to a measure of your prayer life, your devotional life, who you listen to, how often you come to church, that will not spare you in the day of judgment. Our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but belong body, soul, and spirit to God because we have placed our hope in our faith in the risen Christ alone. And so in, in closing, I want to urge you that if we functionally believe the false gospels of the day, then we will lose the urgency of what's at stake. What I mean by functionally believe is you can believe everything that we just talked through that I just preached through on paper. But if we go out the door and the enemy slides those VR goggles on, you can live in the Disney world of your life with your life all about you, all about your struggles, all about your fears, all about your provision, all about your hardships at work, all about your family struggles. And we can forget that hell is real, that the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are they who find it, that there are false teachers in the world seeking to deceive you and lead you astray, 
And there is a desperate need for you to be rooted and grounded in sound doctrine, to hold fast to the word of life, which is able to save your souls, and to be ministers of reconciliation in the world, that you are an ambassador for Christ, God himself making his appeal through you for people to be reconciled to God. And so instead of despising the lost or judging them from a distance, we go to them with the gospel. And we, like Noah, are preachers of righteousness. We're groaning like Lot over the wickedness around us, and we take the message like Noah and say, come into the ark before God closes the door. And so that is, I think, some of the few takeaways for us for this message. May your life be free from everything that characterizes these false teachers. May you flee from all sensuality and lustfulness and pursue purity of heart. But may your hope be in Christ alone and not in your righteousness, not in your purity, that we fix our eyes on Jesus and then him we declare. We proclaim him with your life, with your neighbors, with your friends, with your coworkers, that there is an urgency to our message that we will see if we take the goggles off, that the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience It is swift, and it is coming soon, but there is hope and salvation and pardon and rescue in Christ that we can call people to. Let's pray. Well, Father, we praise you. Lord, that your judgment is just. We trust you. Lord, I pray for this church family. Lord, how jealous I am for them to hold fast to what is true, to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in him our labors are not in vain, that some of those labors can be in secret, groaning over the wickedness around us, praying for the lost to come to Christ, praying for a move of your spirit to come in power, to see sinners one by the gospel of the Lord Jesus. How I long for us to be marked by the mercy and the compassion and the grace of God, that we would know and see that for the grace of God, there go we. But as those who have received the grace of God, we are obligated, we are debtors to the lost, to see them saved from false gospels that abound and false teachings that abound and see them one into the truth, the ark of Christ Jesus. Lord, wake us up. Help us to see there is no mercy outside of Christ. May that add an urgency to our lives. May we be obedient to be ministers of reconciliation and protect this church from false teachers. Lord, open our eyes to their deceptiveness, to the destruction that follows their teaching. May we hold fast to the word of life. We praise you that you are our keeper and you know how to preserve us and to keep us until you come and make all things new. We worship you, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.